Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, we're coming to that place where we get to sanctification. If you've been with us in the previous weeks, you know that we've been discussing the aspect of salvation and how you know we think of it being simplistic and it's a little bit more complex than we would normally think. And so we've been going through this ordering or the process of salvation. And last week we focused upon regeneration, conversion, and justification, um, and adoption for that matter. But tonight, we are focusing upon sanctification. So a couple of things when we want to start, I want to just kind of get some basic definitions. Sanctification, this is kind of a good quote, I thought that was helpful to see kind of the breadth of salvation. So Earl D. Radmacher says this, if you were to ask me then, are you saved, right? That's a common question. And I were to give you a full biblical answer, I would have to say, I have been saved from the penalty of sin over 50 years ago, right? When he first became a Christian, the, the regeneration that we talked about last week. I am being saved from the power of sin day by day. And I shall yet be saved from the presence of sin when I am in my heavenly home. And today we're focusing on that middle portion. I am being saved from the power of sin day by day. That's one way to think of sanctification. Okay? And here is another definition we can... If anybody has any issues, is what is sanctification, right? That's the question we're just beginning with. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man, or humanity, that makes us more and more free of sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Today we're talking about becoming holy, right? That's what it means to become more Christ-like, is to become holy. And this is a part of the work of salvation that is clearly over and over again talked about in the Bible. Okay, so we're going to go for a few things. First, I want to show you uh, where that's command. I think there are so many commands, it's uh, insane to think about. So the first part is the biblical commands of sanctification. You guys know, stop me anytime if you guys have questions or concerns, but we are focusing on this aspect of salvation. What I'm arguing today, what the Bible argues, is we should be experiencing salvation in the present tense. Okay, not just in the past and not just in the future, but that we are actually becoming more like Christ here and now today. So there are more commands that we could, any command you basically see in the New Testament particularly, but also some of the more enduring ones like the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. Those are all direct commandments that apply to present day salvation, how we are becoming more like Christ. So this is a great command from Paul in Romans 6. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. That's a command. Offer yourself as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Right? So I would call this an obvious and biblical command to become more holy. Don't sin. Stop offering yourselves to bad ways, to ways that are not what God desires, and offer yourself instead, learn God's commands, and then do them. Actually live that type of life. Another command right from Jesus' mouth, he concludes the kind of the first section of the Sermon on the Mount saying this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? Now, many have uh, you know, tried to figure out, you know, people like John Wesley actually did promote that you could become perfected in this life, that it was actually possible. Most people disagree with Wesley. But regardless, there is a standard that is clearly commanded. God is holy and perfect. We are supposed to be in the process of being perfected. And it's even said a second time in scripture. Uh, this is from 1 Peter, and he quotes actually Leviticus. He says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, right? So it's supposed to be a direct 
reflection of who God is, is we should be coming holy. Another command, just in case you aren't convinced, and like I said, I could put about 100 more at least. Uh, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And I really like this one because it has even the word salvation, right? So, I mean, even biblical language that is saying, Continue to work out your salvation. This is also helpful because as we saw from Grudem's quote, where it says the progressive work of God and humanity, we see both aspects, right? The first part is continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there is this work for us to do. We are actually commanded to do things, right? So we need to be able to separate the idea that God has saved us by his grace, no work of our own, and yet God has also very obviously commanded Go do something about this. If you really believe in Christ, you need to respond to who I am, to the life I've given. Uh, Begin working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Do something. And yet, look at the second part. For it is God who works in you to work and will according to his good purpose. So we are dependent upon the Spirit working in us. So this is a great verse just because it really shows the aspect of both God working in us and us uh, working alongside him. Mm-hmm. How do we practically understand fear and trembling? Like, What is it supposed to result in us in working this out? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, a couple things come to mind when I think about fear and trembling. One is a certain reverence and a certain awe for God. So I guarantee, I mean, <laughs> I would hope that all of us as Christians have at some point, you know, we're reading scripture in our own time with God or in Bible study with others, and we come across it. I don't like what Jesus says here. This bothers me right? Something rubs me wrong. Uh, The hope would be is that our posture is to say, okay, I may not fully understand this. This might even, you know, hit some certain things I disagree with, but because I'm following Jesus, because I'm trusting him as my Lord, uh, I'm going to learn what this really means, and I'm not going to just throw it, well, this can't mean, you know, kind of discard it. So I would say the aspect of fear and trembling, one of them is a reverence towards God, a, a reality that says God knows better than I do. So maybe I'm not fully wrapping my mind around this. Maybe I don't exactly understand why God commands this. Uh, So at least at the first point, I'm just going to give God the benefit of the doubt because he's God. And then, yeah, I think it is important actually to understand why God commands things. So I don't think it's just, hey, just do it, whatever it says. Don't even worry about it. No, we actually do need to learn God's ways and learn why God commands certain things. But we also have no authority or posture of arrogance. We shouldn't have any posture of arrogance against God. Yeah. I kind of feel like maybe, especially even back then, that's almost going too lighthearted with it. Like, fear and trembling, I guarantee you back, especially like in those times, and if you read through the Bible, like, I really think it means fear and trembling. Like, God struck people down, and it's no joke, and he's holy, and he can't tolerate sin, and it's like, it's not just being humble, like, I don't know, knowing that like we're less than God, obviously, or like, and I agree with everything you said, like it's so important to be like, I want to find out what this means, and I want to do this because I love God and I want to follow him, but I don't know, when I see your fear and troubling, that's what, like, I don't, I don't sugarcoat it, that's really like what I read into it, like, <clears throat> I need to be kind of afraid and respectful of the fact that God is perfect and holy and can't stand sin and throws it as far away from him as absolutely possible, and if I am sinful, that means me, and can destroy me if he wants to, and can do whatever he wants with my salvation, and 
is also perfect and loving and has grace, thank God, but when I come across scripture that I don't like, it's usually, it usually does, it's because of fear, it strikes fear in me like, oh, I am not like, I am not doing this, or I am not to this extent, or I have not denied myself to this extent, or this is what God is looking for, I haven't given up absolutely everything to follow him, I haven't, like, and it actually does strike fear in me, like, what does that mean? Like, I'm not giving up enough. And I think we forget as Christians, because we always preach that God's our best friend, and he's our, you know, our homeboy, I hate those t-shirts, but, um, <laughs> like, he's perfect, like, we forget he's holy. Yeah, no, that's good, I, I, I completely agree with that, I mean, I think the humility is, is that, yeah, it begins with God is, is in charge, he's the boss, he's the Lord, you know, and so, yeah, I do think there is this aspect that, especially in evangelical Christianity, that we can uh, fit into that, we lose the reverence of God, or Hebrews 12 comes to mind where it ends, just heard this passage this morning, where it says, our God is a consuming fire, right? And there are many such phrases that describe God. God is not, you know, I mean, <laughs> God is really God. And so we do suffer many times from a very low view of how great God is. Uh, one last one. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus makes it very clear. It's not enough just to be tickled by his teachings or to hear them. It's actually to go and do them and actually put them into practice in life that matters. And so all these things fall under the idea of sanctification, the, the command to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus. And any, I mean, literally, I mean, you can't go very far reading in the New Testament to not see uh, portions of Scripture that command various ways of life. Paul, in all his letters, has uh, an ethical teaching in his letter specifically devoted to speaking into the, the life situation of the community. Okay, so we just have to know the Bible clearly commands sanctification. It's not an option, right? It's not an option. It's, it's what it means to be saved is this daily process of renewal, okay? Now, secondly, I want to kind of, uh, who is it? Radmacher, I think, had this. He came up with a few means of sanctification. How do we actually do this? You know, what, what are some of uh, the ways God has equipped us. And the first one is God's word, right? God's word becomes one of the primary ways by which we hear about who God is and how we grow with him. And I know I experienced this. Maybe some of you can reflect upon your journey in Christ. But I remember very well in college where I experienced kind of my spiritual renewal. That first quarter, I finally began to make a commitment to say, I'm going to read scripture daily. I'm seeing other people do this. I've realized, I've always, I used to really like going to church, even going to junior high, high school. Uh, I loved hearing God's word, but I really struggled with actually doing that on a daily basis or weekly basis, especially with studies and other priorities that I had. I, I wasn't willing to set aside that time. And so I did that beginning in college, and I cannot say how much in a 10-week period when you say, hey, I'm going to read through the Gospels. I'm going to start reading all Paul's letters. I'm going to really go for this. The conversations you have with others, all these things combined, I mean, God began to really change, renew my mind, as Paul said in Romans 12. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So I, I totally affirm his statement that God's word is one of the most powerful ways by which we grow in our faith. 
Second is God's Spirit. We just did a whole series on the Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to go into depth. But the Holy Spirit is, is dwelling in us. Uh, it actually empowers us to learn God's Word correctly. It empowers us to live it out. Uh, we are trusting in God to transform ourselves. We are not trying to uh, will ourselves to, to be better people. Um, we, we need God's help. Okay, So God's Spirit is primary in that. Third is the church. And this is one that, again, we've done a church series on this, so you guys have heard me speak about the importance of the church. I am more and more convinced that every single person, including myself, has blind spots. We have idols, we have certain things in our lives that we can't see, and we really need other people who can spot it really clearly and say, why do you spend your money that way? <laughs> why do you do these things? Um, you do it in love, you do it in grace and truth, but we actually desperately need to invite people into our lives, to open our lives up, and to hear corrective words and helpful uh, encouragements from the church, from other people who are trying to follow Jesus first. So I really believe that that's fundamental. And finally is God's discipline or his chastising. Sometimes, as Monique kind of said, sometimes we wrestle with God and uh, it doesn't work out so well and we have to learn the hard way. Uh, also, I mean, Hebrews says it in a way that is also encouraging, even for those of us who say, I am striving after God. I really am trying to follow God. We should also expect times of discipline. It says if God, God or fathers and parents discipline children because they love us, right? So we should expect the same from God. So even if you are following God, right, you know, really seeking after the Lord, you're not just trying to be willfully disobedient. Sometimes you are still going to run into disciplinary and issues because God is trying to make you more like Christ. Okay, so those are four of the primary ways that he brought up. I want to add one more I didn't put up here, but I think maybe God's word should also be expanded to spiritual disciplines in general. Okay, so not just reading the Bible, right? Prayer, uh, fasting, uh, working with God in nature, service. There are so many different things uh, that we've talked to. Again, in previous series, we actually did an entire series on spiritual disciplines and choosing the right spiritual discipline at the right season of your life. Uh, because spiritual disciplines don't transform us. It gives us a space where we can go before God and we can allow God to transform us. We're working with him and relying on the spirit. So I just want to expand it to beyond just God's words. This may be an impossible question to answer, but how much of sanctification do you think is God doing work and how much of it is us doing work? Because you're comment on the spiritual discipline we're just talking about like it doesn't you know do it it's just being open to allow it to happen right and if God's spirit is the one who's doing the work that would be one of the great promises of Christianity is that to meet this impossible standard uh, by ourselves would be a heavy burden and it seems like one of the great promises is the spirit is the one that does a lot of the work so do you have kind of a ballpark <laughs> You want a percentage? Yeah, that's an impossible question. Um, no, I, I do think the way I view it is I really do think that God is still doing the majority of the work. I mean, it, it's fascinating to see, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, when you realize the very same commands that used to bother the heck out of me or, or rebel against, all of a sudden, because God has done something in your life, it, it's like your heart, your mind has changed. And you can't explain why all of a sudden I used to totally not give a crap about this and now I will do it diligently. Um, you know, I mean, God really, I mean, even the one with God's word, I, I mean, it just snapped in, into, it was an immediate thing where God grabbed my heart to make that easy. It wasn't even hard. It was, it was something that I desired to do. So it's really hard to give you a percentage. 
I do think, though, that there's no excuses for being lazy. So people can hide behind. If I were to say God is doing most of the work in our lives, I believe that. Um, I think scriptures show that. But we're also actively doing things. We're participant in God's life, uh, in the life that God has for us. And so I think there should be a diligence for us to say, you know, to be asking questions like, yeah, where are the weaknesses in my life and how am I beginning to work with God in solving those or, or going after them. If, if I really struggle with patience, uh, a discipline of listening is a good thing for me to, to consciously say, yeah, I need, to, I need to think about in my conversations how much I'm talking compared to how much am I listening and asking questions to others. I mean, we should do things like that and all at the same time saying, God, I know you've already shown me. Yeah, patience is an issue. Um, Help me to be inquisitive. Help me to listen. I'm, I'm trusting for you to really change my character, but I know I need to take some real practical steps to do something differently, to live differently. So it's really hard to give a percentage. I, I just, I'm convinced that God brings about the long-term changes, uh, the real transformation where you can look back a year and say, yeah, I'm not like that in this way anymore. I have some other issues, but I'm not, this I've seen some growth in. So that's why Paul's commands are so important because he's not saying do nothing. The Christian life isn't to sit around. Even, even strong Calvinists are still going to say, no, you, you have commands to do. You have, you have to participate with God. Um, so, so even the most predeterministic are going to say, no, we are free, capable people. We've got to learn how to participate with God. Uh, let's get with it. <laughs> so there is activity, and yet we're trusting God for the long-term change. Okay. Now, I want to examine a couple motivations. Why, why should we be sanctified? Why, why should we become more holy? Um, other than because God said so, which I think is very fundamental. But uh, there are many others, and Grudem did a great job of listing like 11 different reasons that he thought, different motivations. Some I've heard many times, and some I was like, ooh, that's different. I've never really thought about that. So why should we be growing in holiness? First is just desire to please God. This is John, Jesus says, this, he who loves me will obey my commands. Right? As you begin to love God, you, you obey him because you, you want to, because you want to be in his pleasure, because you desire a meaningful relationship with him. Uh, we should hopefully experience this even in our relationships with uh, siblings and, and parents and uh, loved ones, maybe spouses, others where, hey, I really value this relationship. You know, if, if they tell me or ask me to do things, yeah, it's pretty unloving if I just totally disregard or reject those things. I mean, that should be somewhat actually intuitive that if you love someone, you should be more inclined to obey them, even on mutual relationships, much less with God is clearly above us. He is greater than us. So it should even give us more, um, more reason for saying, yeah, I'm going to obey you because you're God. I mean, you're not just my, my little buddy, okay? But a desire to please God. Next, the need to keep a clear conscience before God. If the Spirit lives in you and you are living a life full of sin, uh, you'll probably know it. You, that, that's going to be a, a problem. You're, you're going to experience a difficulty in prayer, a difficulty in reading his word, a difficulty in gathering with other Christians. Um, I know people who, you know, they've done the Christian thing and then they're kind of backing away from it. And they be, it's really interesting. Somebody who loved going to church, loved doing those things, becomes fearful of Christian community. Why? Because they're fearful of being called out. You know, they, they don't like the idea those people are holy or they'll make me feel bad for the life I'm living. And yes, Christians certainly at times struggle with judgment. And so that's something that the Christian community needs to do better with. But it's not, Christ, you know, it's not Christian judgment to say, you know, I've noticed you're not living your life for Christ. And this, you know, to do that in truth and love, that we're actually supposed to do that. 
So when you hear somebody getting all angry about, well, they're telling me about my sin. They're calling out these things in my life. It's like, well, are you doing those things? I mean, aren't we supposed to be doing that as Christian community? So you'll experience a difficulty in your relationship with God if you're regularly sinning. So we want to keep a clear conscience so we enter into confession with each other and with God. Another one is a desire to be a vessel for noble use and to have increased effectiveness in the work of the kingdom. Again, if you're doing a ministry, and by the way, if you're a Christian, you have ministry to do. Um, it's not just for pastors. It's for every person. God has called us to be ministers to others. Uh, if you, this may be a reason why you might not find effectiveness in your ministry. Uh, it, it can have very direct effect on your life and on your work in the kingdom. So we want to <laughs> grow in holiness so that we actually impact other people's lives and so that we experience God's presence. Yeah. There's mostly that word effectiveness because you can be, I mean, you can be very, you can be very faithful and not be that effective or you could be not that faithful and still be very effective. Where, I mean, I don't want to necessarily, I want to jump on like Joel scene and say that his theology is bad. But let's just say for like the moment that it is bad. <laughs> there's a sense of like, well, you're not really like portraying the truth, but like there's kind of this effectiveness, or at least a lot of people would call that effectiveness. Maybe it's not true effectiveness. I guess my, yeah, and my struggle is that I think sometimes like fruit is just equated to like how many people come to your church or fruit is, you know, if, how many books you have published or things like that. And that's not clearly what it means, but I feel like it can be used in that way of kind of when you're showing fruit, it's like these measurable, almost worldly outcomes. Uh, I see, read, reading the point, I think that I agree with it. It says the desire to be used for noble purposes and to be effective in the kingdom of God. Um, and the kingdom of God has notoriously been something that does not look like what the world measures success by. So effectiveness in the kingdom is different than effectiveness in America. So I would say that it's already different. Um, and I don't see it as a promise either. Like, if you do A, B, and C, you will be effective. Uh, but what Paul is writing to Timothy is you should want to be as effective as you can be. And so the, it's, it's good to have the desire in you to say, yes, I want to put everything forward to do as much as I can. And that's a good desire to have. Um, and in a different place, he says, you really desire the greater gifts, knowing that not everybody has them. Otherwise, he'd just say, hey, you all have the greater gifts. Yeah, I like that answer. I think it's, it's not an equation here. It's just simply, uh, yes, this increases the opportunity to become effective in God's kingdom. If we're actually becoming holy and more like Christ, there's a good chance that God is going to do certain things. But yeah, we all know people who have been, or, or just people who are given very difficult ministry tasks. Some people groups are harder to reach than others, right? I mean, we, we know that. So it's not, I think you brought up good points with, is this real fruit or is this, you know, how, how the world defines fruit? Um, but even so, this isn't an equation for, if you do this, you'll get this. It's just simply saying, God wants to use noble vessels, people that are actually following him. Uh, and he's more inclined to do so. God uses in the Bible pagans, you know, people who don't even believe in God to do his purposes. So clearly, God can and will use anybody and anyone. Uh, so just keep that in mind. 
Okay, fourth one, the desire to see unbelievers come to Christ through observing our lives. He cites 1 Peter, which are great. Also, Hebrews 12, 14 even raises the stakes, in my opinion. It says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So there's even a greater burden saying, yeah, when we choose to not follow Christ in day to day, when we think salvation is about some ticket to heaven afterwards, and that's the end of it, uh, people are going to not come to Christ as often because they aren't seeing God's presence in the world. And God has chosen his church as one of the primary ways that God is revealing himself. So when we don't act as the church, uh, people are going to have a hard time seeing that this God that we believe and proclaim. So it's really important that we actually follow Christ for all these reasons. Another one is the desire to receive present blessings from God on our lives and ministries. So similar to one earlier. Okay. Another one, a desire to avoid God's displeasure and discipline in our lives. So some of that discipline, remember, is going to come specifically because we are being disobedient. That's the one this is referring to. Sometimes, like I'm saying, hey, we will be following the Lord and he'll still discipline us because this is the process of becoming more like Christ. But this one is referring to when we're just willfully disobeying, uh, we should expect to have some problems in our walk with God and we may even see some results in our lives that aren't so good. Kind of the, you know, you are going to reap what you sow. So if you're becoming more and more dishonest, uh, you should expect to lose friends because they can't trust you. Right? I mean, we should see that very obviously. Thing, things of that nature. We don't want to live that way and receive God's displeasure or discipline in our lives. Another one is we are even commanded to desire to seek greater, greater heavenly reward. God, Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount where it says, hey, you can store your treasures here on this earth or you can store to eternal purposes and you'll receive the benefits. The ones in heaven, the moths, the moths can't destroy it. The rust won't get to it. The ones here, things will pass. It's your decision, right? So we are actually supposed to seek after heavenly rewards. Now, I like that Daniel brought up the kingdom works in different ways than we think. So um, I've heard lots of sermons on, hey, do you want a Ferrari in heaven and, and all this type of stuff? It's like that. You know, I, I think we're missing something here. Uh, we, we've, we, we're certainly projecting worldly rewards in heaven. I don't know how, what heavenly rewards exactly look like, to be fully honest. Uh, there is activity. There is even governing in heaven. There, there's a lot of things going on. So I don't want to project and say, if you do this, then you're going to get some material reward that we value here on earth. That would be also missing Jesus' teachings. But I want to come before Christ, and hopefully you do as well, and have him say, you know, you did a great job on earth following me. You're going to have a lot of stuff to do here because your desires are similar to mine. Here you go, and this is what you're going to be doing now. That's exciting. I mean, that's something I want to hear being said to me and to all Christians. That's what we'll want incarnate that God would uh, be happy with us and say, yeah, you're, you're going to get some great rewards because you're already doing the things that I'm doing in the world. You're a part of my eternal purposes. Yeah. So can that, can that go like towards like being greedy and like being greedy through all of God? Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because... I mean, what I'm referring to when I, when I make fun of it or, or speak about those who say you're going to get a Ferrari in heaven is some form of what I would say, usually it's some form of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, you know, and, and then taking that and projecting that heavenly. Uh, we have to take Jesus seriously in his kingdom when he says the greatest among you are those who serve, those who, who do things quietly. You know, Jesus many times in Matthew 6 talks about when you fast, when you pray, do these things secretly that, that only God can see, you know, so, and we can't manipulate him. 
the same thing is happening where we can't tr trick God. We can trick other people. Um, they can't see our motivations, our desires. God sees it all. I, I just have a really hard time with that notion, I guess, the whole desire to seek the greater heavenly reward. And um, I don't know these verses offhand. I'm looking at them or offhand if it's just saying that we do get rewards in heaven, but not telling us to actually seek that. And I don't know if it's just my personality, but I just get really uncomfortable with the idea of that. Like, and so the idea of me obeying God because I want something is like insane. Like, I don't, it just, so I don't know, what are these, are these verses just saying that we have reward or does the Bible actually say, seek this, do it for this? I think, I mean, even the question you're asking reminds me and the, the way to glory, C.S. Lewis starts out by saying basically that this idea of not having desires just kind of creeps in from the Stoics and other places, but kind of says that like desire is good and the desire to want good is not a bad thing. And it says God doesn't consider our desires too like great, but that they're too little and that we should want like greater things. Just the things that we tend to want here are insignificant. Jesus repeatedly brought up the rewards over and over. When we would think that eternal life is by itself the greatest thing we can imagine, but he repeatedly stressed the rewards. So that's one of the reasons, and not just once, but I mean, over and over, and even in Revelation, he's seen again, reminding people that, behold, I'm coming and the reward is in my hand. The Matthew 6 passage is probably the best one, where he says he's actually commanding the disciples, do not store here, store there. So he's actually saying, like, I'm telling you, store it there, right? Not just like it might be better if you think about it. He's actually saying as a command, store up treasure in heaven. Uh, and that's where we get the idea that Jesus is telling us this, not just suggesting. Right. See, I think I, I agree with what John is saying. I mean, there is really, we all have, and I like what you brought up with Seattle. We all have different desires and affections on this earth, right? I mean, there are things, we, we want security, we want, uh, you know, loving friendship. I mean, there are many things. We want. Some, some things are good desires that are at the heart of God, and other things are worldly, materialistic, you know, things that will certainly pass away, and we know that. Um, you know, and I examine things like uh, the enjoyment of sports and entertainment. I know play is a good thing from God, but how far do I end up going to, does it really matter whether this team wins or loses or, or thing? you know, I can build up so much desire over that and spend money towards it and time and all these things where I'm desiring things through it as opposed to saying, no, like I, I need to desire eternal things that actually matter, that endure. So again, I think the issue maybe that you're having and that I have is the way this can be manipulated. I'm sh I know that this can be manipulated and twisted like health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, other things that are you trying to manipulate God to get more as opposed to saying humbly, yeah, I do want to get into heaven, right? I hear some of the humility in your statement of just saying, I don't even belong here apart from Christ. I just want to get there uh, through what God has done in my life. Um, but, but Jesus is specifically commanding you to not just say, get through it. That's what that, first, by the way, the 1 Corinthians 3 one, we've talked about in the past where Paul says our deeds will be judged. Some of them will pass through the fire. You know, the wood will get burned away. But, but he's even encouraging, don't just pass by the skin of your teeth. Actually do things that are going to get you reward. Yeah, Jess? I, I think I'm picking up on a kind of a dif another difference in that um, there seems, I think there's a difference between being motivated to 
see the kingdom advanced and to store things. It's like when Christ says, store, store, don't store things here, we'll store them in heaven. It's, I think the gist of that is the idea like this isn't, this stuff doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And that's different from saying, store things in this spiritual realm. They're still yours though. It's still individualistic, personal gain. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hear a lot of the desire stuff mm-hmm. sound like to me. Mm-hmm. Is it still, you're doing it for yourself. Yeah, I've always equated reward with this next one, the desire for a deeper walk with God. Um, that That is your reward. It's all about the relationship. Like when Paul talks about the end of Ephesians, he's like, I pray that out of his glorious riches he strengthen you and empower you through his Holy Spirit, where you guys can grasp with all the saints just how high, deep, wide, you know, all of the dimensions of how of the fullness of God's love. And so that reward, that greater heavenly reward, is actually you coming closer to the fullness of God and seeing his face. That love and obey thing, it's like you're getting close to his love, you're able to obey and love other people in a deeper and more genuine way. I think I think with that sometimes it starts as a more mercenary affair where you're wanting the things of God that he has to give. And then as you get closer to him, you desire him more for his own sake and the relationship more for his own sake. Right. And I would say what's helpful about this list, and we'll kind of keep moving forward with it. I mean, remember, the list started off by saying, if you love God, you obey him. Right. So it starts from a love, a, a place of God has loved us. He's saved us. He's rescued us. And now we respond to him back in love and learn to obey. So none of these things are saying this is the only reason. It's simply saying, hey, one of, one of your desires should be to seek heavenly reward, not earthly reward. Because think about how much we're trying to seek earthly reward. Who doesn't want to have fame? Who doesn't want to be liked by others? Who doesn't want to, uh, you know, have, a, have a, a well-off life? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, we have all these affections that we don't check or question as much. And then we come to this saying, this should be one of our desires is to actually seek reward after this life. I don't think that should bother us. If it's the sole reward, that'd be a problem. If it's not coming out a place of love, a place that first just says, God, you're God, and let's begin there. Um, but you're teaching me. You're even saying, yeah, change your desires. Give them to me. Put them towards the kingdom. Um, let's keep moving on. So desire for a deeper walk with God. Uh, this one was interesting. I hadn't thought about this. The desire that angels would glorify God for our obedience. Um, kind of an, just an interesting thought that as we obey God, that, that angels smile in a certain way. Don't know exactly how that fleshes out. Um, but that's an exciting thing, and, and that in that they glorify God maybe further so. So there's a way that we even add to heavenly worship. Uh, a scripture that comes to mind as well that's not listed here is when someone comes to faith. Uh, a scripture talks about how the angels rejoice in heaven, right? So that would be a, an example of the angels glorifying God for somebody coming to know him. So just an interesting thought. The desire for peace and joy. And this one, I think, is something I experience a lot or, or think about a lot is, you know, a lot of us, when we sin and when we disobey God, we experience certain brokenness. And hopefully as Christians, and if the Spirit is dwelling us, we're going to look at the brokenness in our life and say, I don't want that. That's not good. <laughs> this is destroying my life. It's taking me away from God. It's taking me out of fellowship with other believers. I don't want this for my life. I actually want peace and joy. 
We do know people who get caught in addictions who, you know, keep going down a dark, dark road. And hopefully the Spirit is keeping us from that path. When we do experience a bad decision, a willful disobedience, we look back on it and say, wait a minute, that, that's destructive. I don't want that. God, I repent from that. I confess it to you. And, and I want to I turn a different direction. I want peace. I want wholeness. I want joy. I want your presence in my life. So that's something we need God to give us that desire. And yet, hopefully out of our brokenness is where you begin to say, yeah, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that dark hole. I'm out of here. Right? And so the desire for peace and joy can also motivate us when we've experienced unpeace <laughs> or a lack of joy. It makes us go, I don't like that. Let's not do that again. And then finally, the desire to do what God commands simply because his commands are right. And we delight in doing what is right. So what's good, I like this because there's 11 different ways, you know, and he doesn't really weight them or he doesn't say this one's the most important. But when we see this, we see a kind of a whole picture for why we would say becoming holy is really important. It's important because we want to love God. It's important because other people are viewing our lives. It's important because we want peace and joy. All these things taken together, this kind of gives a rather comprehensive picture for why we would want to become more like Christ. Yeah. Um, on the conscience one, um, there are some people, and I honestly think sometimes you're such in a place of disobedience for so long or you get jaded or whatever it is that they really, their conscience doesn't bother them. Yes. I've talked to some people who are like, you know, I don't really believe the Bible really says this. I'm going to continue whatever. My conscience is clear. I'm still following God, whatever it might be. I think it's 1 Corinthians 4, 4 where it says, like, even though my conscience is clear, it doesn't mean that I'm right with God or right before God or something to that effect. Because that, for me, was more like a check, like, even if you think you're doing everything right and your conscience is clear, like, we're still really, I don't know, imperfect and we can never give up enough and who knows kind of where we stand. I don't know. I just am curious. I've always wanted kind of an expansion on that because that's sort of my go-to, like, well, your conscience might be clear, but... <laughs> right. I can't comment on that verse, per se, but what I can comment on the one that came to mind as you were speaking is let us avoid the sin that so easily entangles. And it, literally, sin is a nexus that darkens our heart. And sin in one area of your life actually will begin to kind of go outwards. So what you're saying is totally true. The Bible talks about that. Yeah, if you're sinning regularly, you begin to lose hearing God. Yeah, sensitivity to the Spirit, anything at all. It just becomes a, I don't care. This is still cool for me. It might be not good for you, but it's okay for, I mean, all that stuff, those, like, when we hear that from other people, that's usually red flags for that blind spot I was talking about where we need the church to say, you know, <laughs> actually, it's, this is, you're wrong. <laughs> I can see this area of your life better than you can. Um, usually you can't convince people, but you can pray. And you can't, but it is important to speak into people's lives because sometimes people need to hear a voice that they don't normally hear, like somebody actually calling it out and saying, hey, I think you do this. Um, I remember early on in dating Carissa, she told me I cut her off when she was speaking. And I just, re like, the first thought I had was, I wonder how many times I do this to people and nobody says anything. I wonder how many times in my life I've cut off my mom or, or done these things. And so that just became a place where you could go, I need to think about that and improve, you, you know, I need to consider the weight of that. Um, other people can blow it off, you know, and you can totally blow off correction. People do it all the time, but I think that's important to do that with others. All right, now, this is a question that Dallas Willard asked that I do think is really interesting. It's what makes you think that you will like heaven when you get there? Now, I want to phrase it in this way. Let's put our shoes, maybe some of us are in this place, you are not, uh, what I like to call sleepy Christians, 
or, or just simply disobedient or, or even just uh, apathetic, right? Why does it really matter if I'm becoming more like Christ? This question is really interesting because when we consider it, what is the most overwhelming or obvious reality in heaven? The presence of God, right? I mean, kind of what Catherine was saying. So if you are spending your life regularly uh, rejecting God or pretending he's not there or trying to push distance away, even as a Christian, say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I kind of want to live my life the way I want to live it. This question becomes very relevant because this is what makes you think you're cultivating affections or desires that would make you comfortable in heaven? If you're spending your time avoiding God, and God is by far the most overwhelming and obvious reality in heaven, do you think you're going to like it? Why? Why would you think that? So, I mean, I love it because it's a very pastoral question for me uh, to ask other people who, you know, you are saying, hmm, I'm wondering what's going on here. Because people can say, yeah, I'm really looking forward to heaven, but I'm not living my life now. It's like, are you sure you're going to be comfortable there? Why? What makes you think that you would be? I guess it seems kind of what you're saying that a lot of people, it feels like they just want to be sanctified to a point and then just kind of feel comfortable there. And I think sometimes it, I think sometimes it feels like it'd be hard to like want to move past that, almost in this idea that there's kind of like communion with fools sort of thing. But even within Christian circles where I think of like, you tend to kind of relate to people about complaining about something. And there's almost a sense of, it's like, if I, and again, this isn't me trying to be self-righteous, but sometimes you think of, if I really, like, took seriously the sanctification and tried to do that, would I then, like, be completely, like, cut off or unrelatable from all these other people? Yeah, that's a good point. No, I, and, and especially because we tend to say those people are like God or too spiritual or overly whatever, um, but I think for the most part, that's a, that's a lie or it's a, it's a twisted understanding because if we take Hebrews seriously, no one will see God without holiness. That kind of settles the debate. No, we are simply supposed to become more and more holy. And even if people are uh, maybe intrigued or even put off or, or like true holiness, not fake holiness, not the wrong type, but real holiness um, will, will help people to see that God is real. Another thing, yes, holiness is being set apart, being distinct, being different, but holiness is also directional in the sense that it goes into dark places. Like holiness goes into dark places and transforms them, right? So it doesn't mean that you are distant from, from the real issues of people's lives, and it doesn't mean that you can't hold on, hold in, you know, maybe a normal conversation or, or things that maybe even interest that you don't care about, frankly. Um, but that, you know, Eugene Peterson refers to a ministry of small talk, right? So, so real holiness, people can do that and say, even though I don't care about, uh, you know, curling or whatever, you know, somebody cares about, I can listen to you and care about you because I'm wanting to learn to love you and value who you are. And that, that's real holiness is being able to do that. Uh, but I, I mean, we have to be willing to say there are some places and some activities I can't engage in. You know, there's some, or, or there's some unedifying conversations. I'm out of here. And I don't care that you guys are going to all like frown at me because I'm trying to act more holy because I don't want to be part of this gossip. I'm just not going to stay here. I, 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 this is not edifying conversation. And you guys might try to pull the I'm so righteous and I'm above you. I just don't want to slander somebody. 
so I, I can't be a part of this. And you can do that in a way that isn't, you know, shameful to those. You can quietly exit, you know. I feel like we haven't set the bar high enough sometimes because if you have like a thousand people who are all saved on the same day, the only thing they have in common in sanctification is that they're at different places. So when we try to speak to people, we just say, well, no one's there. Like, we try to find the common ground. Like, nobody is fully there yet. So what people actually hear is, well, you know, since we're all at different places and we'll never actually make it, then it really doesn't matter how far I go. And that's actually what happens a lot of our churches is we talk to everybody, and the only thing we all have in common is that we're all sinners. We go, oh, okay, good, I'll just stay there. Uh, and we don't set the bar high enough. And I know that the other tendency, though, would be legalism. you got to stay away from doing that. But if you never, if you just let people relax into it, then then we're not doing our part of the partnership of sanctification to even have a bar set a little bit beyond where we are right now. Yeah. I, I really agree with that. And even in my job, like our kind of RA class, res, res life class, um, it seems that there's, it seems when one of our students like, gets this idea of realizing that they're limited and that they're not perfect and that they need they don't have to like try so hard that's such like a growth or such a development and to a point it is of realizing you're limited and you need God but it, there's a part of it that always unsettles me because it seems like we're calling it development or congratulating them for kind of not trying as hard or being like I should just not do something. I think it's really interesting like because this comes into play what we were talking about like last week about the dual um, people that we have within us, um, or like the dual, I guess, like components, and whether or not we identify more with being forgiven, or whether or not we identify more with being a new creation. Um, and I think that like so often we fall on, oh, well, I'd rather be on the forgiven side of it as opposed to the new creation side of it, and because of that, like we identify with the sinner and we continue in that and we're praised because we're forgiven as opposed to rebuked because we were supposed to be a new creation. Yeah, I think your statement, Soren, and I'll go to you, Catherine. Um, grace needs to be the oil that actually releases us to become obedient, to become more obedient because it would be stifling if God were to say, you have to live up to me good luck, and if you do so, I can love you. I mean, that essentially is, we can boil down most religions into that class, is, is essentially you have to earn God's favor, and if you do such and such and such and such, God will be pleased with you. If you fail, then he won't, and he'll judge you accordingly, right? But that is a stifling, I'm convinced that the essence of the gospel is the only way to truly know God and to be released from that type of pressure, because I can't stand up to that. I don't think anyone can, to be honest, except for Christ. And so that is a freeing thing, is to say, no, God loves me in Christ, and now he's freeing me with his grace to, to obey him and to come and to learn from him. And, and that, that frees up everything to actually do that in humility, with fear, with trembling, with, with a sense of knowing that God is very holy, but he's, through Christ, I'm made right in his eyes, so now I can, I, I can begin to move forward. And I would, what I would speak to that is this question, what's one way I would like to become more like Christ this month or this year? And last Wednesday, or two Wednesdays ago, we actually even journaled a little bit of that if you were at John and Lena's, because that is helpful, right? It's saying, yes, I'm dependent on God. Yes, I'm a sinner. I have some issues. But what's one area of my life where I, I sense, I know, I'm not fully like Christ? 
Uh, can I identify that through the Spirit? Can I begin to invite God into this area? And then, and there are, and then we start going through the what's my part, what's God's part? What are some actual ways that I can uh, begin to cultivate something like patience or whatever it is? Um, and then how am I inviting God to actually transform me so that this sticks, so that, that I'm actually a changed person, not just trying to will this myself? But that's something that's very specific. And I think when we want to grow in Christ, we need to ask those type of specific questions to each other and to God and say, yeah, wh where is a place where you're, you just don't have lordship in me? Like, what am I holding back from you? And then as that's revealed to you, saying, oh, all right, let me confess and let me repent. Let me, let me live differently. So maybe that can help. One last kind of uh, the steps in sanctification. So we've kind of already gone through this. God has given us very specific things that allow us to grow in him. God's word, his spirit, the church, his discipline, and spiritual disciplines, right? These are all very obvious ways that God has given us a means to sanctification. I mean, there is a mysterious aspect, as John referred to. What part is God's and what part is ours? That's hard. Um, and yet God has given us a lot of things to do. So meet regularly, right? This is why we meet week after week, so that we can encourage one another. Pray, actually study God's word, consume it, feast upon it. As Jesus said, we don't live upon bread. We live not just upon bread, but upon the word of God as well, right? It's central to who we are. I mean, th these are very wonderful gifts that God has given us uh, so that we can become more like him. One last appeal. Here's the appeal to sanctification, and these passages are everywhere. But Ephesians 4, 9 through 20 is a great one. It says, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord, right? There's your work. Find it out. Figure it out. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But in everything, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to, another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're commanded to live as children of the light. We need help exposing our deeds. Uh, shame, hiding, and blame happens at the fall in Genesis 3, and it happens in our lives today. Uh, we have to get out from the shame, from the hiding, and from the blaming of others. We have to expose deeds. We need other people's help. We need God's Spirit to convict us and just remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit who's living in us. What do you think of instances where people believe in God not because they want to get to heaven but because they don't want to go to hell? So they do things that are broadly, I mean, broadly maybe like understood as uh, pathways to salvation, but everything else they don't do. Well, I would say the biggest issue is. At best, it's going to be a shallow belief, and you probably won't endure. If the only thing is you're trying to run from hell, you're missing out on the love of Christ that's, that's filling your heart. You know? And so most likely, most of those people either at best, they remain in the faith because they're guilted or feared or shamed into it. it it's not going to produce real fruit, though.
But God throughout history, there have been, I mean, Jonathan Edwards is famous for the sermon called, you know, what is it titled? Uh, in the hands of an angry God that thousands, I mean, thousands of people put their faith in Christ in hearing to that. The, the real question is, can you progress past it? <laughs> is the Spirit really present in your life, moving in you so that you would actually know him? Right? I mean, the book of faith is a book of knowledge. The Bible is the book of knowledge of actually knowing who God is. That is the great reward. I think I agree with Catherine's statement. Those are good ones. It's God's presence and actually knowing him and allowing him in relationship to you to change your life. You know? And so, yeah, people running from the, the anger of hell or, or the fear of hell, if, that, if it stays there, if it doesn't progress, you know, that's an immaturity of faith. My question, and I think maybe it's touching a little bit on what Don was sort of hitting towards. Um, and I don't think we're going to be able to talk about this now because obviously we're like coming to an end and maybe we'll hit this next week. What you presented, it's, it's good. It's interesting. It's, I got a lot of great points out of it. Sanctification is absolutely necessary. Like wanting to obey God. Like all of these things I agree with completely. So how much of this is necessary to say you are saved because you have sanctification? How far in the road of sanctification makes you safe? If you are the person that's only doing it not to go to hell, but you believe in Christ, but you're not really adhering to all these things, are you still saved? Are you still going to heaven? Are you still in God's family? So that's like a whole other question, because I don't think anyone, well, I'm not going to say that, probably plenty of people would argue with this, but if you're earnestly really trying to obey God, um, you're not going to argue with the beauty and the necessity of sanctification, wanting to like obey God and all of that, but the role that that plays in, are you saved? Is this necessary to be saved? Is it a necessary part of like life in order to attain salvation? Yeah, it's good. I think a lot of people based upon faith traditions would answer that differently. At least the way I'm coming for it, that's why I think Dallas Willard's comment is instructive. Because if you're not growing in Christ, if you have no desire to do so, that should be a huge red flag, you know? And I'm sure people in this room have friends, have family members, have people in their lives that are important to them, and you really begin to question, like, I'm not seeing fruit in their life, so I'm not the judge. And, and obviously the man on the cross had no ability to grow in holiness, right? I mean, and, and so God takes care of, who, of how the judgment goes. Um, so I don't think I can ask it, but to me it's just simply put is that anyone who were not seeing that progress in Christ, that's why I like the term sleepy Christian. You know, I mean, something, they may still be Christian, uh, but they need to wake up. Uh, that's this call to, a, that's why Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Like, <laughs> your life hasn't changed. Uh, you may not be saved. I don't know. There's no way I could know that. But if you're not growing into Christ's likeness, we got a serious problem here. Because you, you may not have it, and you may not be very comfortable in heaven, and you may not find yourself there. Um, and you're missing out on the peace and joy and wholeness of life. And that's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. It's near, right? And so we're supposed to be experiencing God now for eternity. So. I think you said it right when you said it depends on your tradition, right? We're going to talk about this, so this picks up right in the next week. If you're one of those people who believe that you can choose God first, and that's what brings you to salvation, you also believe you can lose it. And they would say a lack of sanctification is a warning sign that you could lose it. You might be on the road to losing it. On the flip side, if you're more of a Calvinist and you believe that God chose you first and you can't lose it, they would say that if there's no sanctification going on in your life, that means there's no fruit. And that's a good sign to you that you're not chosen. Yes, I agree. Some are 
to say, yeah, like, and it does make a big point whether you can lose your salvation or not. I mean, he's totally right, so we'll see more of that. Let's, uh, let's obey this last command here. I'll say it again. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to invite the band so that we can do that. Uh, Lord, we, we do praise you, and we thank you for your goodness. God, it is such a gift that you would actually dwell in us, in our hearts, in our minds, uh, in our very being, not just in a comforting way, but actually, metaphysically, you dwell in us. You dwell in your people. Uh, Father, we praise you, and we ask that you would, would convict us, Lord, that your spirit really would be active and that we would be sensitive to who you are, the ways you want to speak into our lives, the places of darkness and, and ways that we aren't uh, totally exposed. God, help us in that. Help us to confess and to repent and to walk with you. Uh, Lord, we know that we want to experience peace and joy and wholeness now. We want others to come to know you. And we want to do it mostly because you love us and, and we've received your love and we want to respond to it. Um, God, thank you for your son, Jesus. And would you please, uh, everyone here, uh, would you be saving us daily from our sins and, and making us more like you. I pray this in your name. Amen.